Okay, thanks, Eleni. Um, yeah, so at least in uh, Venezuelan culture institute we can talk about WikiLeaks without <laughs> fear of arrest or uh, imprisonment. Um, yeah, so in a way, uh, when, when kind of discussing the, the motive for this event was to try and think about, I was kind of briefed to think about uh, what impact Kitler might have in the kind of uh, the context of media studies here uh, to some extent. Um, which obviously is quite uh, an apocalyptic uh, impact, potentially. Uh, so what I want to do is kind of follow that through to some extent. Um, and I want to start with, you know, quite obviously with the motto of the conference, Kittler's phrase, media determine our situation. The opening statement of gramophone film, typewriter. And I think that's an interesting formulation and position in the context of the framing of this conference, because for British media studies, with some honourable exceptions, such a position is a blasphemy. Media studies in Britain, however, is often a misnomer. In the main, it focuses on communications, political science, representation, an analysis of content or the social that avowedly is what shapes media. Media are firmly and determinedly not studied. And under this regime, we're in the main solely to turn our attention to what passes through them. Medien bestimmen unsere Lager. The situation Kittler talked about is that of a military situation room, a situation that was at that point in time seemingly not yet out of control, not yet too late to determine in projecting, evaluating, and ramifying the fascist imperium. In Kittler, there is a subtle mourning for and an admiration of such moments, points at which media and communication systems dip below the horizon of the knowable. The stakes of determination are also discernible at the point at which they become indiscernible. There is certainly a sense of only knowing at the point beyond which it is already too late to act upon what is known. Some of this fascination drives Kittler's interest as that rare thing, a conservative post-structuralist, for instance, in his statement that he was looking forward to the Iraq war in order that new weapon systems will be revealed. In this, as Florian Kramer notes in his recent book, Anti-Media, Kittler has something of a punk drive to shock, saying the unsayable that's also at the core of our situation. But it's also a means of knowing what it is already too late to know, a fatalistic humour. And it's with this wryness in mind that I want to think about media determinism. That's with a certain irony too that we can also note that clearly media determinism in something that would, would be overread in the context of the academic world marooned on these islands. So in a certain way I want to address such a reduction of Kittler's work by exemplifying it. Technological determinism and media determinism, uh, which is a subset of it, uh, is perhaps most epitomised by Lynn White in the history of the effect of the stirrup on mounted combat in Europe and its concatenation of effects. The stirrup allowed for the knight to have a point of leverage at the foot using swords or lances, but also on the social form of Europe, consolidating feudalism, since a social organisation had to be built to keep the good knight on his trusty steed. This is known as the great stirrup controversy. 
something that Deleuze and Guattari draw on in their theory of the assemblage. The stirrup becomes the hook around which a particular assemblage congeals. But there are other kinds of technological determinism. That, for instance, of a mode of operation as a social fait accompli. Proudhon's formula, the workshop will make the government disappear, or perhaps the very contemporary-sounding aim of Saint-Simon, to replace the government of men by the administration of things. The anarchist emphasis on finding the correct social form for struggles that puts in place the society of tomorrow is related here. Think of the kind of discourse on the workers' councils, for instance. In design theory, Rainer Bannum talks about gizmos, small gadgets with disproportionate power like the Evinrude outboard motor that in their dispersal across a large territory formulated an American approach to technology that perhaps we can see an echo of in the idea of the personal computer. Equally, another form of media determinism would be uh, solutionism, what's being called solutionism presently around cryptography or the idea uh, that you can generate solutions um, that put in place, the uh, technological solutions that put in place the change uh, that you want to see affected. So a lot of kind of hacker ideology runs through this. Media determinism, in Kittler's sense though, is something inherited from McLuhan and the Toronto School on the one hand, and Foucault on the other in different ways. For Foucault, the genealogical point of reference would also be Nietzsche, whose alarming and exciting encounter with the Malling Hansen typewriter exemplifies media determinism in a certain sense. The case that is classically brought up against media determinism is Edison's famous list of the uses he presumed the gramophone would afford. The idea that it would be a way for the dead to speak to the living, as a way of taking notes, uh, and so on. About 10 different cases he imagined people would use the gramophone for, none of which involved music or dancing or jazz, uh, to think of my discussion earlier. So since the inventor misapprehended the use of technology, which were then taken up by society in different ways to play music rather than record the voices of the dying, we might want to ask, however, who is Edison to speak on behalf of the phonogram? Media come into being without necessarily being recognized as such. The phonogram comes into composition with music, the domestic, and escape from it in desire. If Edison couldn't see it, who could? One answer is media itself. In its prehensions of the world, having resonance with the kinds of cybernetic yearning that Simon Don, or conversely, Stuart Brand, talks about. Where British, what Kittler might call Anglo-Saxon media studies, does have a certain edge, though, is in the tracing of symbolic systems of representation through to political systems, such as patterns of ownership, the fabrication of identities, the staging and scripting of discourse and ideologies. In other words, as a vocabulary and set of tools ready to analyze power in relation to media, usually as a form of communication. What they often point towards, but can however never quite manage to utter, is that media are constituted and constitutive forms of power in themselves, as for instance articulated by de Boer and later by Agamben, and developed by scholars with a more media archaeological bent, such as Jonathan Crary. 
There's a lot of prevaricatory and sometimes useful work involved in, in uh, Anglo-Saxon media studies, therefore, in finding modes of resistance, of identity formation, of apparent audience empowerment, and the tracing of subject formations such as those of fans, in order, in part, to avoid having to address the power of media systems in themselves, or indeed to posit and map counterpowers. But let's relate this back to the question of what Kittler in particular brings to media. One of the ways into which this is somewhat, one of the ways into this is somewhat banal, so it's obviously the one to select. And uh, I think you know the kind of preparatory notes or the kind of comments from uh, Sam Weber uh, kind of uh, pretty much preempt what I'm going to say here, so you can take it uh, as a kind of gloss on that. Media Wissenschaft has no precise parallel in the Anglophone Academy. The concept of Wissenschaft or Wettenschaft shaped in the late 19th century, combines all forms of higher learning, making difficult the dichotomy between the humanities and sciences. One can say that Kittler, with his emphasis on technological learning, for instance, teaching the programming language C, operated on a refoundation of Wissenschaft for a computational age. The eminent Swiss neurologist Pierre Glor, in his survey of the work of Hans Berger, the inventor of the encephalogram, whose work I'll look at in a minute, suggests that the intellectual credo of Wissenschaft is best expressed by Goethe in Faust, where he expresses the aim that I may detect the inmost force which binds the world and guides its course. Berger was a scientist-philosopher whose initial interest in the brain was spurred by an apparent experience of telepathy an interest that he repressed until he was able to at last discount it. In other words, in the framing of Wissenschaft, all the tiresome debates that we experience uh, in, in the Anglo-Saxon Academy about the, the, whether it's possible to have any commonality between science and the humanities are at least potentially rather welcomely groundless. In this context, the reading of the technical is of note. Contemporary theory uh, has, in a certain sense, two dominant schools of thought that are present in, re in relationship to understanding the technical. And um, some of this was kind of framed earlier in the discussion of Latour. STS, Science and Technology Studies, is highly acute to the technical and questions of epistemology, but is largely depoliticized, unlike uh, in its, its, and in its current formulation is unlike the prior uh, movement, social construction of technology, which tended rather in the opposite direction. Secondly, we can say that uh, in, in terms of a reading of the technical, we can say there's a broadly post-autonomist current, which recognizes the stakes of media and the general intellect, but has no means of delving into it in detail. So Kittler's attention to technical detail at a profound level is exemplary and feeds into currents uh, such as software studies that aim to find means of recognising the interlinked nature of the technical, the political, the cultural. And part of the significance of such a condition can be summarised well by turning to the extended mind hypothesis. Andy Clark in Supersizing the Mind says, inner neural processes we have seen are often productively entangled with gross bodily and extra bodily processes of storage, representation, materialisation, a manipulation. Such a formulation would certainly imply that media are indeed our situation. The slightly wry or ironic condition that Kittler rightly ascribes to this is that we are no longer in a position to know about determinism. 
The position to know is lost over and over again, as, for instance, after 1941 with Gottfried Benn amongst the sandpits of the German High Command, where it may still have been possible to take stock of the situation. Equally, this is with the design of the last Intel chip to be fully comprehensible to one designer, described in the essay, There Is No Software. In informational terms set out by Kolmogorov or Chaitin, we can describe this as a formulation of the status of thought or texts that have less content or meaning than the material substrate which preempts them. Kittler's argument is related to whole part formulations and in Humean vocabulary to that of relations terms. And it's here that we can see also that Kittler establishes a boundary. The question of the body or experience is rather beyond knowing. Hence, I think, why you know, Pythagorean mathematics perhaps is a, a, a talking point. But I think an attention to matter, as well as the technical, as the, as the simply technical matter, will afford us certain other possibilities. Returning to this opening phrase of media determining our situation, what we can perhaps say more precisely is that contemporarily, uh, for Kittler particularly, standards determine our situation. Kittler sees standards as something akin to forms in the Aristotelian schema of hylomorphism. Humans are the matter that is worked on as a residuum or side effect. The dryness of this approach leads in turn to some humour. In optical media, Kittler approvingly cites the journalist and UFO expert Klaus Simmering's answer when asked whether television was art, to which he coolly replies that television is an internationally standardised way of seeing, defined in CCIR report 4071. Here we can say a relationship uh, to Foucault straight away. For Foucault, the norm is an interplay of different normalities. Something perhaps that we can see articulated in Kittler's entertainingly clumsy digressions into the erotic. But far more exciting and culturally forbidden as such than mere erotics is the question of technical standards. As part of the move to an analysis of the effects of the computational subsumption of all signifying systems guided by Shannon, Kittler lingers over the descriptions of cases where, in a form of transposition from one system to another, the elements and associated rules of medium A can be reproduced in the elements and associative rules of medium B. There's an obvious Lacanian play here where symbols and symbol systems do not and cannot refer to a real but simply to other symbols and symbol systems. Here, the determinations of media are encountered in the combinatorial or transpositionary limit. The elementary and unavoidable act of exhaustion is an encounter within the limits of media. Equally, to work with another reader of Lacan, Félix Guattari, the interplay of media systems in this mode of description imply and entail processes of subjectification that obey the normal patterns of psychosis implied by each set of standards and their transposition to another. The maladaption to such standards implies anguish, invention, the minor or everyday administrative humiliation. Media are sets of interlacing sets of standards whose idiosyncratic effects are the result of the multiscalar interference and phasing of their characteristics. We might take, for example, the great heights of excellence in today's academy in the UK, where a whole book may simply manifest as a point to index in an auditing or citation mechanism. 
or the way in which computer use can synchronize with and amplify conditions such as obsessive compulsive disorder. The phasing of the interplay of standards can, of course, lead to some interesting and pleasing effects, as Kittler notes in his discussion of computer graphics. Sampling also produces continuous and thus striking forms where the program code never intended any at all. We can see a related effect in his entertaining history of the interrelation of church painting and architecture in optical media. What is celebrated more is the paradoxical effects of the interlocking formalisms around painting, religious iconography, architecture, and the mathematical means to arrive at each. This acuity towards standards and the kind of moiré patterns of their interplay leads to his sympathy to open source software. But the attention to standards as something more abstract than simple substance means that Kittler's is not an approach to technology that is technocratic in the, in the techno-determinist sense of, say, uh, Corbusier's architecture that offered the choice between architecture or revolution, clear planning or devastation, but something far more giddying, psychedelic and dark as media forms swirl in and out of each other apprehend, ablate, stop, and address each other in ways that have significant effects. For instance, as Sybil Kramer notes, affecting the means of time storage, manipulation and recall, time axis manipulation. Kittler's is then a highly sophisticated form of technical, technological determinism that's also readily alert to the ways in which such symbolic systems effectively detourn and mutate each other in manners that are not immune to correlation with the diagnosis of psychic disturbances. Part of this pleasure is to be found in an ironic fondness for what might be called bad ancestry, revealed in the genealogical work of finding the roots of media technologies in those of war, or the roots of the domestic video recorder in systems for shopping centre surveillance. To some extent, this fascination can be mapped in relationship to recurs mapping of what he calls the hermeneutics of suspicion. But such an irony is incapable of producing highly, such an irony is capable of producing highly multiplicitous genealogies of systems and entities. But in examining the nature of these precursors, we can return to the tricky, rather formless set of moments before media become standardized. One can say that media art, or the work of avant-garde more widely, is to sustain and feed this state of indeterminacy. And here we can say, although there's been a kind of uh, critique of so-called German media theory as being um, largely retrospective, that in this moment of indeterminacy, it's also possible, uh, I would say, to address notions of futurity. So it's this particular moment um, that I want to think about as, as something that can be um, taken forward in a certain way. And I'll, I'll read through a kind of discussion of the encephalogram as a, as a way of doing this. At the same time as it's to contradictorily make technological breaks that ruthlessly or seductively, this is the avant-garde, conjure or impose new systematizations. And here, to put it simply, such moments must be interrogated by ethical and ethico-aesthetic questions of power and empowerment. Media consists both of experimental apparatus, contraptions, in the words of artist Graham Harwood, in describing experimental witnesses and participants that are not yet stabilised as instruments, but also of highly stabilised standard objects. 
With the general computer, there's a potential for, to, for a tendentially permanent indetermination. Machines built upon machines. Hence the importance of Shannon Turing for Kittler and his attention to them as an important foundation for media studies. This is what constitutes in part the nature of the politics of the struggle over the formation of the computer that we're all currently living through. So the question of tempora or prison, for instance. In order to exemplify this to some extent, I want to return to Hans Berger and his discussion of early experiments in the electroencephalogram. Kittler's work is attentive to the sheer massification of the category of media, and Kittler, like Virilio, whom he praises, rightly emphasizes the military roots and concatenations of media systems as bad ancestors. In this lecture, I want to suggest that another such genealogy could be drawn through the medical as well as the military. Here's an account of experiments held in 1928. I hope you forgive me the relatively long quote. Then, last year, at a time when my observations on man, which I shall report below, were already available, I again performed three experiments on dogs. In these, I used the large Edelman string galvanometer and the double coil galvanometer of Siemens and Halske, the latter with a particularly sensitive inserts. The dogs used in these experiments had received 1.5 grams of veronal by mouth about five hours before the experiment. Then, in addition, one hour before the beginning of the preparatory operation, they received 0.03 to 0.05 grams of morphine subcutaneously. In accordance with Eindhoven's suggestions for the recording of the electrocardiogram in the animal, and in order to avoid cooling of the cerebral cortex, I substituted freshly amalgamated tiny zinc plates for the non-polarizable clay electrodes, which I'd used before. The zinc plates were introduced into the subdural space through a slit in the dura. So the dura is the tough membrane surrounding the brain and the spinal column. They measured 12 millimetres in length and 4 millimetres in width. Their four corners were rounded off to avoid injuries. To them was soldered the well-insulated connecting wire. They had a surface area of 25 square millimetres. After they had been inserted through the slit in the dura through which they were able to just pass, they were advanced into the subdural space far enough to come to rest in the laterally sloping region of the skull. Their surfaces were firmly applied to the pia arachnoid covered cortex and they were pressed against the dura and the bone by the pulsating brain. The trephine opening, which was kept as small as possible, was enlarged with a lueur's rongeur, which is a sort of tweezer-like thing, only to the extent necessarily to permit easy introduction of the tiny zinc plates, and was then completely filled with the wax customarily used in brain operations on man. The well-insulated wire was led through this mass of wax. The wire itself was surrounded by wax, and the skin was then closed with a few sutures over the trephine opening. Thus, the brain was in no way exposed to drying and cooling. In accordance with the above findings from the literature, it was found that when these electrodes were applied over two areas of the same hemisphere, a current exhibiting considerable oscillations is present at all times. So this is an account of the contraption assembled in order to verify the first findings of electrical activity in the brain. That current became known as the alpha wave, later to be joined by the beta wave. Originally, these were known as Burgess waves. 
We can say what a relief it was to find out that the brain speaks electricity, the proper language of the 20th century, and not that of thermodynamics, that of the 19th. But in order to produce a standard, in order that it can then go on to be determining, a lot of work has to be done. There is, first of all, what Isabel Stengers would call stabilisation against loss of heat of the body of the dog. So this concern with uh, heat stabilisation was primarily an artefact concerned with uh, the theoretical concerns uh, to do with the law of conservation of energy and the dependence of biological processes upon physico-chemical mechanisms which are entirely subtendent upon thermodynamics. So this was a key concern uh, of models of the brain at the time. If you look at the history of uh, brain science or sleep science in particular, uh, temperature of the body becomes a key actor although it's something that's relatively discounted uh, presently. So much of the action was on a kind of uh, methodological or epistemological model of the, of the body, which, which wasn't really pertinent. But secondly, there's a question of the translation of one media to another, transduction. But of a transduction that's not simply of one symbolic system to another, but of multiple kinds of matter and process, including the pertaining knowledge systems for handling them. Further on in the same article, Berger develops questions about the instruments and methods, the sensitivity of the coil galvanometer by comparison with the spring galvanometer. The latter was a, a later model. The two instruments which were used concurrently for cost reasons. The difference in results in placing the electrodes or their uniformity in placement in generating experimental artifacts. The non-effect of diminishing blood flow in this dog or total exsanguination in another, the possibility of changing brain volume or the artificial arousal of the dogs via injection of a 0.01 to 0.02 grams of cocaine hydrochloride into the jugular vein. Berger is time and time again haunted by the worry of the stability of his object. Blood flow, perhaps, he conjectures, causing the stability of the waves via the beating of the heart resorting to decortication of the dog in order to establish this as a factor or not, the brain is isolated from the organism in order to guarantee itself as a witness, just as the dog is from any electrical influence by the use of glass legs on the operating table. Berger too, it should be noted, is isolated, working largely alone for over a decade and in the evenings. Relations to the work of other researchers were, it can politely be said, rather bad. Berger's papers are often concerned with what would now be separated out as method, the reflection on the means of the stabilisation or the precise capture of the objects of study in terms both of the physical phenomena and the experimental instrument that attends to it. The papers gathered by Glaw in Berger's account of the development and refinement of the encephalogram and its accretion as a standard are digressive, reflexive, in fact, they were written in the evening after a day's work and taken by dictation by what is described as an intelligent patient. They are, in a certain sense, records of his struggle to find out what media is. As Andrew Pickering might say in his discourse on the operation of the mangle, there is a toing and froing between method, standardised behaviour, standard objects, and what is yet coming into more precise relation with forms of knowledge. It's not about establishing a generic network of entities in the actor network theory sense, but about specificity and attention, working, poesis. 
At the same time as this, however, it is something that involves existing standard objects, the development and the mobilization of complexes of them as they relate to or work in between messier or unknown forces and capacities of different kinds of matter. In later works in the paper discussed earlier, Berger is able to translate the inscrutable operations of epilepsy into waves, patterns that are by means of harmonic analysis, such as Fourier transforms, so samples of, uh, samples of a phenomenon over time. In, in the conditions uh, of a Fourier transform, media create conditions where they mediate, here between mathematical techniques for transforming frequency over time and a form of seizure. Equally, it was able to verify the similarity between artificially induced epileptiform attacks via the use of cardiazole, used to treat schizophrenia prior to electroconvulsive therapy by means of their common reference to the waveform. So the waveform uh, that Berger isolated was then used uh, in turn to identify um, both epilepsy and the proper treatment of it. So this, this media artifact, this media phenomena, this standardized form, um, was the way in which the, the brain became speakable to, became translatable to. The wave mapped by the Fourier transform becomes the means of verifying the state of the patient. Media and standardized mathematical analysis, indeed, constitute our situation. One imagines a closing of the circuit between the electrogram, electrodes of e electroencephalogram and those of electroconvulsive therapy. What um, Woody Allen has as Edison's medicine in his recent film. The human in such a dialogue between machines becomes, of course, a mere transition zone, but perhaps also the dark precursor in Deleuze's term that justifies the coming together of these, these entities. Whilst what Berger calls imbeciles display more beautiful and fully demarked waveforms than people categorized as intelligent, it is also notable that he discovers that making the facial expressions associated with thinking does not in itself result in the decrease in amplitude of the potential oscillations of the brain associated with that state. So this is a useful trick uh, to pretend not to know in an academic conference. So here I want to go back to the question of media as systems of standards. Systems of symbols are read and interpreted by the schema of other systems. In discourse networks, it's put as, whether from algebraic variable to note values or from letters to chess abbreviations, nevertheless, every transposition leaves gaps. There's a specific texture and system of combinatorial capacity in each media. Some media are capable of a universal representation of the workings of another. At a certain scale, for instance, it's possible to write out a textual description of what is more often rendered in musical notation, but media transpose each other with a certain parallax effect. This is something foundational to the interventions made by the computer. It's universal universality of all symbol-based systems. And media systems, as Kittler put it, converge on the comp computational. But this is not a, a computational, a kind of a convergence that ends in a, in a fixed result, what might be the end of media history, in a sense. This is a vertiginous combinatoriality. 
Think of code reading before Bletchley Park and afterwards. Something that went from an art of interpretation based on human ingenuity to one of probabilistic determination based on the combinatorial power of the computing machine, the consequences of which politics and culture have largely yet to catch up with. We see also in this interplay of series of norms, codes, and standards a certain aporia in Kittler, where there is a certain, more than a certain reticence to talk about capitalism, something that he sets aside as the work of economists. Media theory, however, must address itself to money as a form of media in itself, something certainly that conforms to the idea of um, all of the kind of th the tripartite category of media that Kittler describes. If all media converge on computing as a means to integrate symbolic systems, such systems are in turn latched onto, called to order, amplified and set to work by money and the money-capital-money cycle. In turn, signification is only one of the modes of operation of signifiers. Guattari's work on Lacan and Hemslev would be a point of critique and development here, but this is only part of a wider condition. We're currently experiencing a historical moment defined by multiple workarounds of the crisis of authority, the place in the hierarchy of different systems of abstraction and concreteness, systems that wrestle over what it is to count as concrete and what is abstract, what it is to register as a symbol to be traced by a sensor or not. Computing is, of course, key to this, but money also. At the same time, other systems are consciously or unconsciously vying for eminence. Ecology on the one hand, and the fatal twins of humanism and religion on the other. And this is something that contemporary media theory, in an expanded sense, may well find opportunities, if not necessities, to size up to. And this may well, in turn, require a form of materialism, that is able to work at high degrees of imminence and abstraction across signification, but also in the messiness and exquisite nature of flesh. Here then, there is a necessity to attend to the myriad kinds, states and modes of matter alongside the standards they are coaxed into without a necessary or a priori privileging of any specific scale of such. So if, using a Lacanian formulation, Kittler claims that technological media transform the real rather than the symbolic into a code, as in optical media, that can be manipulated, reversed, and so on, <coughs> it might be moot to ask, what is the status of materialism in Kittler? I have to say that I don't know the answer to this question, but I think it's one that has kind of played out uh, throughout his work. But I think it's something reasonably productive to suggest that one way through to it might be through this diagrammatic split between the symbolic and the real that is both operative on and shears off from its intended point of traction. Crucial for the present moment is how computational forms such as databases and media formats internalize such relations, but also generate them in ways that spiral off and into the world determining it, but also constituting it. Such media generate effects, as does the interplay of their standards, and such effects can be powerfully non-linear. Think even, for instance, of extremely simple terms within standard forms that generate the non-linear and irrational, 
like the Pythagorean formula of the square root of two uh, that Sam was alluding to, the number pi or the number omega discussed by Gregory Chaitin and Luciano Parisi. Here, determining factors operate upon themselves and determination becomes generative and expressive. Codes transcode themselves. It's not unconnected that some numbers were called a-logos when first discovered by the Pythagoreans. Kittler maps similar effects happening in language in discourse networks, but attempts to make the real addressable via mathematical techniques and systems of reference <coughs> via mathematical techniques and systems of reference conjoined with such processes, and in doing so, overspill the bounds of the merely symbolic. Another way of saying this is that we have yet to have an analysis of matter, an equivalent moment to Gödel's opening and reconstitution of mathematical logic, perhaps because a point of homogeneity was never reached in the way that it was in the 1920s, 1930s in maths. In terms of mainstream databases, we can think of such constituting forces as the mathematics of sets and their instantiation as logical structure, normalization, and the particular idea of the relation that they establish. These are indeed standards for the generation of standards that in turn, by their interactions, may produce or diagram non-standard entities, standards becoming non-linear. As such forces interact with and gain traction on, involve and mutate social forms, aesthetic preferences, they refound the notion of media. And I think this will be something that uh, Olga Gurinova would have discussed in her, in her presentation. The activity of technology and a media remind us that there is no single, simple modus operandi of the world. To go back to Goethe, that which binds the world and guides its course is the world, and that, that media are a determinate part of. That there is yet no universal standard through which we, it, can be accurately and fully transducted is to perhaps rather to be welcomed. Part of the work of media theory, then, is to find ways of refusing the capacity of totalization. Yet in the era of prism, we're rightly reminded by Kittler to pay attention to the mechanisms of transcoding. Thank you.